0: It's the On Podcast Network, your team every day. Support for this podcast comes from State Farm, here with good news and even better news. The good news? State Farm has new lower car insurance rates. The even better news? That means you can now get the service and convenience of a local State Farm agent at surprisingly great rates. State Farm can help you save more cash and get the good neighbor service you deserve. Just talk to your local State Farm agent or visit statefarm.com to find out how much you can save on your car insurance. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. You're Locked on Warriors, your daily Golden State Warriors podcast. I am Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to bring you your team every day. With another couple of days off, I wanted to dig back into the Reddit mailbag well and got some great questions from various people, and the way this works is I'm going to do as many questions as I feel comfortable with, and if there's still more that I feel are worth answering, I will do those in a future either episode or part of an episode. First question is from Winter Assassin R. Want to hear your thoughts on Mike Brown's coaching in the second round? What does he do well? What are some of the things he should change? Well, his coaching in the second round wasn't as good as the first, and the biggest thing that he did right in the in the first round and get particularly in game 3 and not in the second was really adjusting to circumstances kind of as they changed and the biggest part of that is the second unit. So in game 3 of the Portland series his first game as a, as coach the Warriors flailed a little bit in the third and he kept the starters out there and they really pushed through and facilitated the comeback that ended up w- winning the game. The second unit has pretty much not consistently but not uniformly, but fairly consistently struggled to get offense, and I'll talk more about that later, and it was concerning to me that he didn't start the second quarter of Game 4 with Durant, considering Durant missed about the last six minutes of the first quarter with foul trouble, so unless he was really worried about him picking up a third and a fourth, but Durant doesn't foul that much, so I wouldn't have been worried about that. It it was weird, but then he did come back and and use Durant in the fourth, so that's, that's a positive, and... Somebody else commented that uh, that thinks Brown is leaning too hard on Draymond and, and things like that and leaving other guys out there. The Warriors are playing their best players less than just about every team, and part of that is because they're better than their opponents, so they don't have to, and they've had a lot of games locked up early. I mean, they've won all but one game by double digits, but Draymond has only played 38 minutes. Once in the playoffs, and that was the 40 in game three. Other than that, he's at 34, 35, and my barometer for him for the playoff average, so that's including the early rounds and the late rounds, had been 40. So he's far, far below that. He's only crossed 40 once, and that was in that game three. So I don't think they're using that at all. The best teams rely heavily on their best players, and I actually think that will come back in some of the later questions in terms of how to resolve the worst circumstances. I don't think he's relying too much on Draymond at all. He's giving him rest early in the in the first and in the third, and I think that's working out fine. Now, you can make a counter argument that some of the Warriors games have been blowouts, and that if it had been closer maybe then Draymond would have been overworked, you know, if he didn't get to sit at the end of the game. But that's a hard counterfactual because coaches can change their whole rotations depending on how early a lead happens and how much they maintain it. So I'm not particularly worried about that part of it. How he reacts to when circumstances change is something, but also the Warriors haven't really been challenged in terms of overall outcomes. So you generally see those sorts of changes like Bogut on Tony Allen, like Iguodala in the starting lineup you see those things when a team goes down in a series you don't usually see them when another team comes back in a game and still loses by double digits so they'll have to be quick on their feet in the next round whoever they face but i think brown's done a pretty solid job overall next question is from chappinator if lebron continues to shoot well from three in the finals does that change the way the warriors defend the Cavs compared to the last two years broadly no in specific cases yes because even if LeBron is making his shots, he's still more dangerous as a driver and a passer than as a shooter, especially with Cleveland's surrounding personnel. They have a lot of other capable scorers, and LeBron driving often gives them open shots, and those guys can convert it. You know, that's really what Kyle Korver, that's what Channing Fry, those type of guys, that's what they do really well. So you don't want to give them openings in those circumstances, and the Warriors also have a lot of good one-on-one defenders for LeBron. So, If their choice is kind of to make him a driver or make him a shooter, they should choose to make him a shooter every time, and he'll make some of them. You have to be prepared for that, but you also think that a lot of times those are going to be one-shot possessions as well, so if he's out there, you know, depending on their lineup, sometimes they they can pressure the offensive glass with Love and Thompson, but... I think you're okay with that, generally speaking. But then you have to be ready, as I said with the last question, if circumstances change based on specific, you know, developments. If he's, if you think that for whatever reason there's something in his shot and he's just not missing that day, and it's not going to change, then you go through it differently. And then regression to the dream had a follow-up on that of who do you think gets the most time as LeBron's primary defender in the finals. I've bounced between Durant and Iguodala on this. I think Durant wants the assignment more than some people think. He's kind of alluded to this throughout his time in the Warriors that he wants to get some of those big defensive assignments and bristles a little bit at the idea that it's not in his reputation. I think it's possible that he gets significant minutes also if the Warriors are not going to go back to starting Iguodala, which they don't have to do now, but I still think if you're going to play him 35 or so minutes in the finals, you might as well start him because otherwise he's playing these really weird minutes and you're staggering him from LeBron. The other reason why I would lean towards Iguodala, though it's not uniform and I think you can ride the hot hand a little bit, is that Durant is a very good help defender. And playing him on LeBron means that you can't really do much helping unless it's, you know, digging down and letting LeBron shoot a three, as I was talking about the last question. Iguodala is also a very good help defender, but... KD's ability to block shots in particular is a really big advantage. So I would lean Iguodala for the minutes they're both out there together, but Durant being able to take contact into his body and still have long enough arms to affect shots is a very material advantage against somebody as strong as LeBron if he doesn't get bowled over. You know, if he's strong enough to take that first hit, could be a really big advantage. And we've seen that have some issues with other guys. Actually, there were some possessions where he did a nice job on James Harden for that exact reason. And Kawhi, there have been a couple times because he he's just so long that he can affect shots even when he's not in perfect position. And part of what the best scores, and this includes Kevin Durant, do is they get guys out of position. So it's kind of it's not really a hedge answer, but I I do think it's kind of both of those things at the same time. Question, this this one came up in a couple different things, so I'm not really going to answer it as a single question. I'm going to kind of answer it collectively using this as the feel for it. From Gigi Idian Jura, how will the Warriors fix their early second and fourth quarter offense if they do make the finals? And then, so basically it was the questions were fixing the offense, second unit, second unit, all that kind of stuff. So the biggest thing that the Warriors can and presumably will do is just playing their best players more. If you want to use 40 or even 42 minutes as the baseline for Curry, Klay Thompson, Durant, and Draymond, if you use 40, then they are only eight minutes total per guy that they're not on the floor. And depending on how the coaching staff wants to manage that, you could either do it with some staggers, you could do it in a couple different ways, but no matter what, it's going to be less time with some of those imperfect lineups out there. I presume Curry is still going to play the entire first and third, and then the, the differentiator is going to be how long he sits in the second and fourth. Durant, maybe it's a slightly modified version of that, comes out a couple minutes before the end of the first, comes comes in a couple minutes before, or later in the second, and then Draymond and Clay probably keep their same one, they just come out a little bit later. So the other way that they can do this, and this is actually intuitively what I would support, and I talked about this a little bit on the episode I did about rotations, is the idea of keeping three of the four on the floor more regularly going to that approach, because I think that you can create reliable offense that way. And also defensively can be a huge help. So you have three of the four out there, run it that way. And then you're probably going to have three of the four out there and Iguodala a lot of that time. So I think that's a way of resolving a lot of those issues that you're just not putting out those same combinations of personnel. And I think that could work out reasonably well. And the other just huge part of that in terms of Cleveland's second unit is that you need to make sure every guy who's on the floor can defend in space. Like there were some people saying, oh, where's JaVale McGee going to play in the series? And I'm going to talk about that a little bit later too, but I don't think you can play him in the minutes where Channing Fry is on the floor because you need somebody more versatile. You need somebody who moves well and Channing Frye is not a perfect player. The only way that you could use JaVale, if he moves his feet well, also you could try him on a different player in that lineup. That might be intriguing. I don't know exactly who that would be, just depending on what personnel they have at the time. But going in that direction, just seeing if Channing Frye absolutely can't hang with him and Lou might pull him, and that's actually something that happened a little bit in the finals, but you need to make sure that you have somebody out there who can stick with Channing Frye and not concede open shots, because three is greater than two. And Valanchunas, at moments in the second round series, was just leaving Channing Frye for no good reason, and there really isn't a good reason. So going smaller instead of bigger with that spot is a good idea, I worried a little bit about David West's movement in Game 4 of the Jazz series. That's going to be something I'm watching intently in the beginning of the next series, whoever they face. So that'll be, you know, just to see if he can move all. Because if he can't, then maybe you start to move towards using Draymond at center at that point or doing something of, the, of that vein. And considering how well Tristan Thompson does on switches, that's not the worst idea in the world, especially because Draymond already plays those minutes. So it wouldn't be that big a shift. Maybe then you go to David West in the first quarter, you can do a lot of different things. But I think that's one of the ways of fixing it because Draymond at center solves all of those problems. You, you have either, you're basically putting a wing on Channing Frye. That's not a problem. You're making Channing Frye defend in space. All that works. And the Warriors have enough wings, especially if they're playing their starters minutes, and then you can dip into Barnes and McCaw if you have to do whatever, whatever works. And most teams can't go small that often because they do not have the personnel. The Warriors are one of the rare teams that do. So they should absolutely should. And then uh, Helicase, this is the other part of it that I want to talk about. How do you see the Cavs defending the 10 to 12 minutes per game for JaVale at the five? He's going to have a significant height reach on either Lover Thompson. I don't think JaVale McGee plays 10 to 12 minutes per game. The biggest benefit of playing those guys I talked about earlier, 40 minutes, let's say you get Iguodala to 35, is that you can play Draymond at center a whole heck of a lot more. And that lineup works incredibly well. It is still the Hamptons five, a lot of the other variants are still some of the best things the Warriors do. And that does not mean JaVale McGee should be out of the rotation or something like that. It's just that there should not be as reliable an assumption that he's in there no matter what. So you try to pick your spots with him sometime that Ideally, that that Thompson's on the floor because I think he can work best in those lineups. Unless he really does eviscerate Channing Fry. But the other reason why the JaVale stuff is compelling is because Cleveland doesn't have a lot of other options this year. They don't have Timofey Mozgov. He signed for way too much money with the Lakers. They're you know they have like Eddie Tavares because Bogut got hurt. He's not going to play in the finals. So or unless something really really messed up happens, so you can create a circumstance there. It's a ta- a weird tactic advantage but a tactical advantage that matters where you have more counters than your opponent does so if you can make them dissatisfied with one of their options they don't have much to fall back on so that's really how I would use JaVale early in the finals if that's what happens and then you take that information gleaned probably in the first two games at Oracle and work from there. And that's that because information gathering is a huge part of this. We haven't really seen a representative sample between those two teams. They haven't played in such a long time and played since January. And those games, as everyone knows, were quite weird. They were intense. They were their own thing. I don't think you can read too much into that. And last year's finals is certainly a part of the equation, but we'll have to see. So I think JaVale McGee's worth a try, but he's not going to reliably be a part of it. Question from Wicknest Who do the Warriors have a better chance against in the Western Conference Finals? I think that Houston is the answer if both teams are full strength, or as full strength as they're going to be. Nene is out for the rest of the playoffs. So he's not a factor in this at all. The only exception to that for me would be if Kawhi is hurt in a way that will limit him for a longer time in the series. I don't think the Spurs can beat the Warriors without Kawhi at close to 100%. As much as their support players did a wonderful job in Game 5, they're not going to be doing that game in, game out. So I think that if in that case, maybe you turn San Antonio. But the reason for me with Houston, I talked about this a little bit with Nate on the Twitter NBA show that we did yesterday, was the idea that... As much as Houston is better now than they were last year in particular, but also two years ago when they were the two seed, but just in terms of being a playoff team, I think their depth of talent is a lot better now. You still pretty much defend them the same way. It's just that you're more cognizant of their other support pieces and maybe you want to help off them a little bit less. But the idea of defending a Harden pick and roll with two guys is still the centerpiece of stopping Houston. That hasn't changed. And the Warriors have very good personnel for that. Talked about this a little bit in terms of of LeBron, but it's even more true for Harden because Klay Thompson comes into the mix. And remember that they figured out Harden the last two years. And one of the solution pieces was not Harrison Barnes. And Harrison Barnes is not on the team anymore. Kevin Durant is a new option to throw at those circumstances. The Warriors have better help defense. And they have enough wing talent, including guys like Matt Barnes, that if Houston goes small that doesn't hurt the Warriors at all. If they're going to go with Ryan Anderson at center big whoop, the Warriors go Draymond at center and, and beat them at the game they want to play. And that's one of the big differences between the Warriors and the Spurs is that the Warriors going small makes them better. It doesn't, it, and it's something that they've done a whole lot of. So it's not a big deal there. Whereas the Spurs, Pop is notoriously reluctant to play Kawhi power forward and all the other changes that come with that. So that's why I lean Houston, or sorry, lean Houston as being the team the Warriors have a better shot against, because that's the way the question was, was phrased. But obviously the Kawhi thing or any subsequent injuries. You know, Tony Parker's already out for the playoffs, but as of now, Houston is the more desirable opponent. Question from Coss, Toyne underscore Cost, what changed after the three-game losing streak in mid March to now a 23-1 to run? What stats should we focus on? I don't think you even need to rely on stats. They were just playing tough opponents on the road in a, a challenging slate at that point when they, when they went, you know, I think it was something like two and five. And you have the cumulative stress, You have the fact that they have been dealing with Durant being out and everything that the 23 and one is closer to it. But the other part of 23 and one is that a series of those games were against teams that were not particularly competitive. Because if you remember at the end of the year, you know, they're facing teams like the Lakers and the Suns who just ate it. You know, they, for, the Warriors fully deserve credit for the games they won against good teams, like when they beat Houston and San Antonio in that run, both of which were impressive in their own ways, and coming back against Portland in Game 3 of that series, coming back against the Jazz in Game 3 of that series. So they're, I'm not discounting the wins that the Warriors had, but typically when a team goes on a run like that, you need a little help from your opponents, and the Warriors got that as a part of the run. But they're also better than every team they play. They either were or should have been the favorite in just about all those games, probably not the game against San Antonio, but maybe every other one. And if somebody wants to go dig back through 538, they can. But I believe they were either the favorites or awfully close to it. So you don't expect 23 and 1, but something along those lines is not so unreasonable. And that's part of the reason why the Warriors are special, is because they do lose, everyone does, but they are favorites against everyone. So it goes in with that. Good question, uh, one that I'm happy to answer from KJ Castro. The common wisdom is that newly formed super teams usually don't fully click until the second year when they have a full season and a summer behind them to work things out. How do you see them how do you see this team improving assuming the roster is similar? This is completely true. Not only do you see it with super teams, Boston even though they won the title their first year, I thought they were they were strong in that second and their third year. Both times they lost to the Lakers, but they were good. Miami is probably the best example of this because Miami was an assembling of guys that hadn't played together, the key guys, Bosh, LeBron, and Wade. And that first year they had that big adjustment. They lost in the finals to the Mavs. With the Warriors, the biggest part of it is not really a scheme adjustment because the Warriors are still playing Warriors basketball, and I think that was the surprise, the development that happened over the course of the season was that originally they tried to kind of Durantify part of parts of the offense. The defense pretty much stayed the same, other than the changes related to guys like Pachulia, just because he's not Bogut. But defensively, it's it's largely those approaches. But what happened with Durant over the course of the year? in large strokes it's not uniform but in large strokes is that they actually just incorporated him more as a cog in the existing system as opposed to changing the system to fit him and that bodes really well for moving forward assuming people stay because then what has to happen is just durant gets better at fitting in to the system that already exists and that means there will be less of an adjustment for everyone else Steph Curry is a good example of this, Klay Thompson, Draymond, and also I think that they will have a better sense of what they want to do in terms of the regular season rotation, in terms of bench units, because they were really figuring that out on the fly. You remember all the fury and frustration around those losses to Cleveland and then to Memphis around the change in the uh, change in the year. And a lot of that was just them figuring out who they wanted to play with who and, and rest and all that. And they knew how many minutes they wanted to play these guys, but that's only a part of the equation. You want to figure out what combinations work, what combinations don't work. And while they will obviously have some turnover, any team... In the warrior situation, will the big questions they should be closer to answering? And considering the expectations are that the structure of the coaching staff should be similar, I haven't, heard, I don't have any inside sources on that, but it seems to me like even if Kerr had some sort of limitation that was long term, that the structure is largely in place. So even if they had to change the top, I think that they have a lot of this together, and they know, and the players know it too, and so I think that all runs together from there. So a lot of it is really just about Durant working this summer on picking his spots, knowing where to be, and working on his game in that context. I would like to see him get better, pay at setting screens, but that might be a bridge too far. But also just the idea of the kind of two dribbles and a good decision type of thing. He is okay at that, but it's not something really that Oklahoma City ever asked him to do. He, I, I don't doubt that the, his ability to come off screens and things like that, though, that's also not something OKC okay or, or getting the ball off a triple handoff. I think those are things that tie in relatively well with what he does. But the idea of two dribbles and a good decision is, what do you do when one of your best options is not just isoing on your guy? And Durant is one of the best isolation scores in the league, but that's just not the Warriors idea other than circumstances on switches and crap like that. The other way that the Warriors can really work with Durant, and I think this will be a much bigger part of their offense next year, is everybody on the team understanding how and when to get Durant the ball on a switch. Because Durant, like a lot of big guys, Nikola Jokic is a really good example of this, actually, if you watch Denver next year. A lot of the best post-up players in the league, Kevin Love is like this too, actually, are far better taking advantage of inferior guys than really that old school center versus center, back to the basket, put the guy in the goal type of thing. And that system, what Jokic does, what Durant does, is actually much better in the modern NBA because teams are getting more open to switching, they're getting more open to just kind of handling pick and rolls differently, and they're also getting better at attacking traditional actions, so like a big, big post-up. So getting Durant on those smaller guys, this happened a lot in, I think it was game one, it was one of the games of the Portland series, I think it was game one because that's right before he got hurt, and If he can get on a guy that's like 6'5 and not super strong, Durant can get to a spot and either force help, and he's tall enough to see over the help and find a spot there, or just get a good shot quickly. And so I think the Warriors can Durantify that part of their offense and become really, really hard to stop. And we could see that as soon as the NBA Finals, not as much if Houston wins the Spurs series, though it could happen a little bit if San Antonio wins, just because if he gets like Patty Mills on him then maybe you see it differently. But Cleveland has some guys, Kyrie being one, maybe JR, depending on how feisty he's feeling, that if they get on Durant, it's going to cause them a, a real problem. And so you need to be able to attack those circumstances, identify them, get the ball to Durant, and have him attack quickly. Because if you attack quickly, you can either create an advantage or freak the other team out enough that you get help and make that nice pass. Something actually that David West does very well. The idea of, you know, creating a small seam and then hitting through it. That's a lot of the passes to Clark or just like a, a split second turn or something like that. Next question is from Regression to the Dream. I think this is their second question. How do you see the Warriors' uh, potential next opponents, so whoever they play in the Western Conference Finals and the Finals, countering the Hamptons 5 lineup and how well do you think it'll work? It won't work well. Neither one of these teams can play five guys that are really comfortable switching. Incidentally, Cleveland's best switching big is Tristan Thompson. It's not one of their smaller guys. It's their true center. But Tristan has done a wonderful job in this. He also had some big moments in the NBA Finals last year. So Cleveland's counter would probably be something involving LeBron at the four and Tristan at the five, just because you don't want Kevin Love out there in those circumstances because there are too many places where he's a liability. We actually saw some of Cleveland's best stretches during these playoffs come with Love on the bench, almost for that exact reason. They probably will want Kyrie out there just because Kyrie's so massively dominant offensively in a good way. But something involving maybe Amon Shumpert as the fifth guy, maybe Richard Jefferson, something like that. I don't think it can be Kyle Korver for similar reasons to Love, unless the Warriors are playing a guy that they can leave open and then you can rely on Corver as a help guy. He can do that. Well, but that's something different against Toronto when they're playing PJ Tucker or Indiana with Lance or a few other guys. The Warriors don't play that many guys who are just avoidable. So I think that's going to be something that really does work in their favor. I talked about this a little bit in yesterday's podcast, but I don't think they have a counter. And then the two west teams, if the if Houston needs to go with like Anderson at center, especially now that Nene's out. I don't think that's going to work. And the Spurs, it's probably Kawhi at the four and LaMarcus at the five. That could work actually well because they just have so many good perimeter defenders. And I think Mills is better in those spots than Tony Parker would have been. But they haven't done it that much. And it's asking a lot if they use John Simmons. Like I think their best five would be Mills, Danny Green, John Simmons, Kawhi, and, and LaMarcus or Pow, You can play the hot hand there. But that's not perfect. That's probably one of the best lineups, though, in the league. That and the Cleveland Five might be the two best presently. And then, you know, there are a couple of teams like Boston, if they can add a whole lot of talent or maybe even the Sixers later on that could do a good job against that. But it's really tough. Dakaroon, one, said they'd uh, love to hear stories about the Chris Mullen night from the opposing team's perspective. Uh, So I don't know if they meant the Timberwolves perspective from the Timberwolves or mine, but... I don't know how to get the Minnesota perspective on it, but I will say that there is a chapter in my upcoming book about the Mullen Retirement Night. It's not a long chapter, but there is a chapter about it just because I was covering it. I was there that night. I was on Press Row, and I thought it was a fascinating event that has really changed in tenor after. And what I focused on in the chapter was the idea of it being really the last vestige of the dark days before what has happened since. And I'm not going to say where it fits in the book or anything like that, but it is something I talk about because I do think it is this resonant moment in everything else. Question from uh, Feppo Comedy. When, if at all, is it too late for Steve Kerr to come back for the playoffs? I don't think it's ever too late with this team and and the connection that he has. Also, he is still a voice in the room, it sounds like, that he's giving advice, talking to Mike Brown. He could come back for game seven of the NBA finals. And I think that would be totally fine. And the reason that he is part of why he has been so incredible as an, an influencer is the idea that this team can function without him in that way. And that if he came back, they wouldn't lose their stride. We've already seen this. We saw it last year. The Warriors set the NBA record for wins in, in a regular season without Kerr out there for half the time he came back. And while there were things that happened during his absence, that's the way that it is. And that's also why the Warriors can be so patient and supportive with him, is that while he is important, they can make this work. So I don't think it's... It, it is a big deal, and they are missing having him around there. But it is a very different thing to be without him now than to have been without him for the whole prep process, integrating these guys. It's kind of like the the analogy... And, but working on analogy for this and the closest one I have right now is it's like changing architects when the plans are already done and the building is already like, basically they already have part of it done as opposed to changing architects when it's still in the design phase. And they can, you, you know, you can get another architect who can execute the vision and maybe they're going to make some changes and some of those will be good and some of those will be bad, but you're already almost all the way there. And so many of the other pieces are there. The support structure with player, people like Ron Adams and Jaron Collins and even the front office that I think that it's, it's pretty well in place. And that is the exact same reason why Kirk can come back at any point. And this is a veteran team. This is a team that knows Their spots that knows how it works and that has a lot of accountability, not only to the coaching, with the coaching staff, but with each other. And that's the other reason why this really works. And then the last question I'm going to answer is from Foo For All. Is Draymond's recent on and off court behavior starting to become a distraction? Answer is no, it is not. Draymond is Draymond. He has really been this guy. And I think of this in uh, an overwhelmingly positive way, except for the stuff on the court with flagrant fouls and all that. He is his vote, his being vocal, it does a couple of different things. One, it helps kind of galvanize the team in its own way because they have to, you know, they have to kind of live up to it. But also I think that it, it serves as kind of a pressure valve because his ability to say what he wants to express himself in that way takes the pressure of headlines off of guys like Steph and Durant if if that was something that they didn't want to have to deal with because there is a lot of media around this team and that's not a surprise and Durant you know Durant's pretty comfortable in his own skin too it's I've been surprised by that even going back to when I covered him for Team USA shortly after he made his decision in I think that was late July early August and Durant can do that too he has at moments this year but Draymond he relishes that and he's comfortable in that role and I mean you can also see that with the thing like he signed that person's Draymond, uh, I think it was a Draymond like technical foul or flop counter or something like that and he signed their poster on his way out. So, he he's kind of going at it in a different way and I don't think it's I don't think it bothers the team at all and it might rile up the other teams crowd but the Warriors are good with that. They don't really care. And if there are opposing teams that are looking at him differently or that are more motivated to play against them because of that? Well, they probably were giving 100% in the playoffs anyway. I don't think you're sitting there going, oh, well, I wasn't going to try my hardest in this game, but Draymond said something mean about our fans. I'm going to do it now. So I don't think it's a big deal. Some people will make it that way. That's, I, I can't tell other people how to write their stories or how to live their lives, but I don't, think it's, I don't think there's much to it. The only exception to that and is that I think it does change the way he's officiated sometimes, and that can be a problem. And it hasn't been so far. He only has that one technical foul, no flagrant fouls. But there is an air of suspicion sometimes around him. And I don't think that's because of his words. I think that's more because of his actions, the kicking and all that kind of stuff. But anything that brings more eyeballs, because one of the stories that I think the average fan sometimes loses in the NBA is that there are a lot of things that could be flagrant fouls, that could be technical fouls, that could be common fouls that are not called. And it's just because refs missed stuff. I mean, there were a ton of just ridiculous grabs in the end of that Spurs-Rockets game. It was a wonderful contest. I'm not saying that spoiled it in any way, shape, or form. It happens all the time in the NBA, just like a lot of the stuff that happens with Steph off ball. Refereeing is imperfect. And the more eyeballs that are on just about any player, the more times they're going to get called for stuff. And so in that small circumstance, it is a little bit of a problem. Just because the thresholds aren't that high for it to be, you know, if that's one extra technical, if that's one extra flagrant, you never know if that's going to matter. But considering everything else, I don't think in this moment that that's as big of a deal. I wanted to watch what his flagrant technicals were at after a couple rounds beforehand. I still want to watch what it is after the Western Conference Finals, should the Warriors advance. But as of right now, he's doing fine. So I don't think it's a story. And that is also completely separate from his words, because, you know, I think I think his reputation kind of is what it is now. And I don't think he's going after it anymore. The other part that I thought was funny of the Olympic stuff was the idea that there is a way of quantifying dirtiness, quote unquote, with Fouls with technicals, with all that kind of stuff. And also, that many of those metrics or whatever the graphics that people came up with didn't include suspensions. And while Draymond was, of course, suspended from game five of the NBA Finals, Kelly Olinick was suspended for basically pulling Kevin Love's shoulder out of his socket. And that was not an accumulation suspension, that was just a straight up suspension. And, you know, he, I'm not saying that that play alone makes Olenek dirty or anything like that. I'm not, I'm not in that business. And there, as I said, there are a lot of things that officials miss. There are a lot of things that I miss, too. But I will say that Olinick was an interesting target for Draymond. I think it was because somebody said something. Because Olenek has become a player, and there are numerous guys like this around the league, who I do not give the benefit of the doubt to. That does not mean that they had malicious intent. Or anything like that. It's that they're around weird stuff so often that I don't go, oh, well, that's an accident. There was an example of that with Olenek was there was a play where like randomly he ended up under John Wall as John Wall was coming down to the floor. It was like he tried to contest a shot or something like that. And, you know, it probably was innocuous, but I don't necessarily give him the benefit of the doubt. He's far from the only one. Matthew Delvadova's is on that list. Bruce Bowen, when he was when he was still playing, was on that list. There are a lot of guys that really push it to the limit. And that could be just they're in the wrong place at the wrong time. That could be that they want to be in the wrong place at the wrong time but either way. And I haven't seen that much from, from Draymond, that part of it. I've I've never really seen that from him where you don't see him like guys springing their ankles all the time when he's around on a contest and he's contesting a ton of shots. You don't see, you know, those like uncalled, uncalled things that often you do see him sometimes, but just like you see him with everybody else. But I don't, those are the players that I keep an eye on more than anything else. And that is not meant as a full-throated defense of, oh, Draymond's not dirty, or oh, he's clean, or anything like that. It's just that he's not on the list of guys that I noticed this for, and I watch as much of Draymond as anybody else in the league. So I watch more of Draymond than anybody else in the league, uh, than I do just about anybody else, because I watch all their games. So I think that's enough for now. There were a couple questions I didn't answer. Some of it was just because I didn't think I had something cogent for it. Some of it was just kind of more duplicates, like a lot of Cleveland and LeBron in the finals and things like that. So I don't, I don't think that I, I need to go into all that. I don't think there's going to be a part two, but thank you so much to our Warriors for contributing all these questions. Thank you to all of you for listening. If you have any feedback, good, bad, or indifferent, Danny LaRue, NBA at gmail.com, at Danny Larue on Twitter. We still don't know when the Warriors' next game is. Rockets, Spurs game six will be on Thursday. So, I might do some sort of quickie preview if the Spurs win, because that means the series will start on Sunday. I might also wait a day for that, still trying to figure all that out. And if you want to support the show, leave a rating, leave a review in the podcast player for choosing, subscribe, download every episode. Those things are all absolutely massive. And you can check out the other Locked On podcasts are doing great work. David Locke, Locked On NBA, Locked On Jazz, and then Josh Lloyd with Locked On Fantasy and all the other ones. And a lot of them are actually doing really good draft stuff. So like I know my friend Jared Dubin at the Locked On Knicks is doing some good draft material as well. So while the Warriors are not really involved in that, if you want to check that out, you absolutely... Absolutely should, and you can check out just the great work. It's an amazing thing to be a part of, and you can also check out this podcast or a bridge version of it on Plus sixty dB, where it's basically just like a four to six minute excerpt. To it's a cool new startup, and they're trying something different. So I'm I'm checking them out and supporting it. But if you've made it through thirty five or however long this ends up being minutes of this podcast, I think you're you're ready for the whole bore. So you can do that too if you want, but you can also listen to the whole thing here or whatever podcast player you're using. And if you are having issues with finding it somewhere or something like that just let me know and that's all for now thanks take care and make it a great day san jose sharks hockey is back and we've got you covered five days a week at locked on sharks i'm kyle demetrius i'm jd young eric fowl together we make sure you're never without your sharks programming will the sharks make a trade for a right winger we got you covered will eric carlson's groin hold up for the entire season we've got you covered Whatever happens with Team Teal every day, we've got you covered at Locked On Sharks five days a week on the Locked On Podcast Network. This is Josh Lloyd, the host of the Locked On Fantasy Basketball Podcast, the number one fantasy basketball podcast